This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Hi there, and welcome to part two of this episode of IP in a Pod. My name is Rahim, a trainee in the IP department, and I'm joined by my colleagues David Fifield and Pete Bird. In part one, we took a look at design rights in the European Union. In this part, we'll be considering UK design rights, including giving examples from a couple of cases. And at the end, we'll have a brief discussion looking at the benefits of registering your designs. So I think Pete will be kicking us off today with a summary of UK unregistered designs. Yes, thank you, Raheem. So when considering the unregistered design right regime in the UK, there's really two different types of rights that we need to think about. Both of these are entirely separate from the uh, European derived regime that we discussed in the first part of this podcast, and both have their roots in copyright law. The first right is known as UK UDR or UK Unregistered Design Right. This protects the appearance of the whole or part of purely functional products. And by that, we mean really the shape or their configuration. Notably and different to the EU regime, UK UDR does not protect surface decoration. It also doesn't cover um, designs or bits of designs which either must match or must fit due to the nature of their technical function. So for example, if an article must necessarily be a certain shape to fulfill its purpose, then it's not protectable as a design. So what we're really talking about here are manufactured items where there is some aesthetic consideration in the design and a degree of design freedom. So toys, games, household items, furniture. I mean, some of the recent cases have included things like strawberry punnet, ice cream vans and kitchen units. So how does it exist? The preconditions for UK UDR to subsist is actually, again, different to the EU-derived design right regime and similar to the copyright regime, that the design must be original. And here we really mean it must be created by the designer using their own skill and labour and not simply copied from somewhere else. Interestingly, that doesn't necessarily mean it needs to be new or novel, to use registered design terminology. And that's a significant point because it could mean there are instances where your design right might be invalid for lack of novelty, but the UK UDR still exists. Designs must also not be commonplace. And this, this means really that they must be sufficiently different from the design field in question. So in a scenario where you have loads of similar designs for similar products, it might be considered commonplace, or at the very least, the scope of protection afforded by the, your design is going to be quite limited over and above those other similar designs out there. Two other rules to take into account, such as qualification for protection, which is usually attributable to the author or to their employer. Uh, but generally, if a design was made or first marketed in the UK or EU, then it will be covered. Designs that are created outside of this probably won't. There are a few exceptions, but generally that's the rule. And unlike registered design, UK UDR just arises automatically when the design is recorded in the document or a product to that design is created. The right lasts for 15 years from either the end of the year of creation or it lasts for 10 years from the end of the year that it's first marketed. So that's UK UDR. The second one to mention really is actually not even a design right. It's actually just the law of copyright. And the reason why I want to mention this, because it is sometimes useful to rely on copyright to protect your designs. 
And there's been several developments recently, in, it, certainly in the EU courts, which have brought around the concept of accumulation, which means that both copyright and design right can subsist in a design, which is something quite alien for UK practitioners. Um, and I'm not going to go into it in detail today um, because I think it's, it could be the subject of a podcast in its own right, and I'm sure it will be. But actually, in certain instances, copyright protection can cover designs either where the product is what's called a work of artistic craftsmanship, which, again, the definition of seems to be shifting recently. And actually, following recent case law, um, it could be much broader than even this. So in short, if the design is an expression of the free and creative choices of the author rather than dictated by technical function, there may be protection here under copyright. So that's the existence of unregistered rights in the UK. And David, I know you spoke in length in the last podcast about registered rights, EU registered rights, but I think there's also um, a UK alternative to that, isn't there? That's right, Pete. The UK has its own national system for registering designs, which actually its origins predate the UK's membership of the European Union. But due to efforts to harmonise the law in relation to registered designs across the EU member states, the substantive law in relation to UK registered designs is very similar in substance to that in relation to European community registered designs, uh, which I talked about in our previous podcast. So, for example, the law in relation to what can be protected, exclusions from protection, the the duration of the registration, and also the tests for validity and infringement are the same at the moment for UK registered designs as they are for European community registered designs. And so I'm not proposing to talk about those in any detail in this podcast and you can sort of just go back to listen to our previous podcast uh, and pick up on those points there. There are a few differences though that I thought I'd mention um, in particular when it comes to applying for a UK registered design and so applications for UK registered designs are handled by the UK Intellectual Property Office. The costs are pretty low so the official fee for an application to register a design in the UK if you apply online is £60. Now it's quite a bit lower than the cost of an application for a European community registered design which is €500. So if you do have a very limited budget then you might want to consider a UK registered design at the moment. However you do also have to add on any draftsman's fees if you need help preparing the images that you're going to file to represent your design and also the legal fees of any solicitors or uh, patent or trademark attorneys who are assisting you with the application which would be likely to be quite similar whether you're applying for a UK registered design or a community registered design. We're enough a couple of points so one is the number of views of your design that you can include in any application. So with a community registered design, you can only put in a maximum of seven different views of the design that you're trying to claim. Whereas in the UK, you're not limited to seven. So if you think you need to include more views to represent all the angles of your design, you can include those in a UK application. Also another potential advantage in relation to UK registered designs is that you can, unlike with community registered designs, you can use text in your application to help explain exactly what it is you're trying to claim in your design. So if, for example, there are 
features shown in the images that you submit that you are not seeking to protect, then you can use explanatory text to help exclude those from protection. And you can also help explain what you're trying to claim is the shape of a product, regardless of any surface decoration that might be applied to it or not, which is not something you can easily do with the community registered design. Once you've obtained a UK registered design, if you want to enforce it, then enforcement is essentially the same as with community registered designs at the moment, other than that your remedies like injunctions and any damages will be limited uh, to acts committed in the UK rather than across the EU. But other than that, I encourage you, if you're more of an interest in uh, registered designs and also to listen to part one of our designs podcast because of the overlap with the law in relation to community, community registered designs. However, uh, I mean, Pete's already given us a great introduction into UK unregistered design rights, and they're also a bit idiosyncratic when it comes to their enforcement. Yeah, that's right. Unfortunately, it's, again, a different regime to the registered design regime, which always makes it fun when, when trying to, uh, to run a design rights infringement case, because there's, there's different tests and there's, there's lots of different things to take into account. And again, like the subsistence of UK UDR, the enforcement of it and the tests that you need to go through are more similar to, to the law of copyright, really, than they are to the, the registered designs regime. So firstly, when you're coming to enforce UK UDR, you'll have to plead how it comes into existence in the first place. So that's, of course, much more complicated than just saying, I've got this design right document, it's registered document, here you go. So a key point here is that you need to be on top of your record keeping when you're designing all of these things, because you can't just say, I've got this design right. You'll need to say how it came into existence, who created it, when they created it, um, and a note here as well is on transfers of ownership, whether you're buying or selling companies or assets. You know, if you're if you're buying a design from someone, make, be careful to ensure that you also get hold of, of a decent paper trail for their entitlement. And another side point there is similar to other IP rights. If, if the design is created by an employee and during the course of their employment, then it will generally belong to the employer. But if it's created by anyone else, and that's, that does sometimes include directors, and it certainly includes contractors, then it doesn't necessarily belong to the designer. So you need to make sure that your ownership is, is sound. Also remember that the right protects the physical manifestation of an idea and not the idea itself. So again, you need to be specific when pleading what the design actually is, whether it's a design document or a product itself. But one of the key benefits here is that design right, UK UDR, can subsist in part of a design and you can decide when you come to enforce your design, which part you want to rely on. So, and we did, we did discuss this last time in part one, but actually if you have a, a registered design covering the whole of a product and only a small part of it has been taken, you'd have to establish that the, the infringing product creates the same overall impression as the whole of your registered design. But that's not the case for UK UDR because you can, you can take small parts of your design and rely on those. So then to establish infringement, the test is whether the infringing article is exactly or substantially to the design. So this is obviously different to, to the previous rights we've, we, we've discussed. We're no longer talking about the overall impression given and the informed user. This is really an objective test to be determined through the eyes of the person to whom the design is directed. And you're also going to have to prove for UK UDR that the design has been copied. 
Again, that's something that you don't have to do with registered rights, which are monopoly rights. Here you have to show in some way, you know, it might be that you can show that such close similarity um, and the uh, the fact that the infringer has access to the design creates a presumption that they have been, but it's just certainly not something that you can ignore. So to conclude on enforcement here, whilst it's it can be more difficult to establish and bring a claim for UK UDR. It's generally much easier to win. And that's been a theme that we've seen in, in, in recent cases, especially where there may be issues with the registration itself. Um, and I think in, uh, whilst, whilst by no means it should be relied on in place of registered designs, it is a useful backup when an infringer may have taken parts of the design, but probably hasn't taken enough of the design to create an overall the same overall impression as the registration you have. Um, and I think to highlight this point, Raheem, you've looked at a few uh, recent cases of interest. Yeah, thanks, Pete. That's a really good summary of unregistered designs and their enforcement. And I have got a couple of cases, both of which sort of illustrate some of the principles that you talked about. The first case that I want to mention is the case of G-Star Raw CV versus Roddy Limited and others from 2015. And in this case, the claimant was the clothing company G-Star, who had created a design for a pair of jeans called the Arc Pant. The Arc Pant had a very um, specific cut on the leg of the trouser, which sort of created the effect of a silhouette. Now, the claimant, G-Star, felt that Roddy, the defendant, had copied the design. In giving their evidence, the claimant was able to show a very good sort of paper trail of how they came up with the design, the detail that was, and, and sort of creativity that, that went into producing it. And the judge was quite impressed with the sophisticated and detailed evidence that was given. The judge then had to consider whether the defendant's genes were made substantially to the arc pant designs, which is what you mentioned is a criteria for finding infringement. The judge noted striking similarities between both pairs of genes and held that the genes, the defendant's genes had been made substantially to the claimant's designs, which led to a rebuttable inference that the claimant's designs had been copied. And so it was for the defendants to prove that they hadn't copied the claimant's designs. The judge was not impressed by the evidence given by the defendants. You mentioned the importance of having a paper trail to show the establishment of a design. In this case, the judge said there was no paper trail to show that they had come up with the design themselves. There were lots of similarities between their design and the claims design, and there were lots of gaps in their evidence. So not only did he conclude that the defendant had copied the claimant's designs, therefore infringing them, but he also made comments about the defendant acting in bad faith, which was also a sort of commercial embarrassment for the defendant. My second case, which I found, which highlights the point you made about one of the benefits of unregistered design rights being that they can apply to parts of a design. And this was actually the case of Sealed Air Limited against Sharp Interpack Limited, which David and Giles Russell Speechless acted on for the claimant in 2013. Now, in this case, the claimant Sealed Air had designed a range of plastic soft fruit punnets, which it claimed had been copied by the defendant. It had the, the whole sort of fruit punnet registered as a design. The court found that there was no infringement of the registered design, i.e. the punnet as a whole, because although there were similarities between the products, these similarities were due to the functional or conventional elements of the design, and that the design overall, mainly due to its aesthetic differences, didn't produce the same overall impression on the informed user. However, 
the court did find that there were unregistered design rights that had subsisted in specific parts of the claimant's design, which had been copied, copied by the defendant. And these were in relation to the shape and the configuration of the product rather than the sort of aesthetic look of it and the overall impression, impression it gave on the user. And so the court found that although there was not infringement of the registered design of the fruit punnet as a whole, there had been infringement of the unregistered design rights that subsisted in the parts of the product. And so the claimant was able to claim a partial success in that regard. And I think these cases are, are really useful for showing that, you know, it's, of course, like you said, having registered design rights offer the most protection to an individual or a company, but unregistered design rights can be a useful sort of fallback if, if those registered design rights don't exist for whatever reason. And so I thought it would be useful for us to go into a brief discussion about why it's important to have registered design rights and what some of the benefits of them are. Yeah, thanks very much, Raheem. Yes, it's certainly the case in my experience that a lot of clients I work with don't necessarily uh, see the value always in registering their designs, both because um, some of uh, recent cases seem to have lessened the value of them and, and, and because they don't want to go down that process. But actually, I think, and I, I think David will probably agree with me here, but there is quite a lot of value in registering your designs because whilst you do have these unregistered design rights, and you can always rely on them regardless. Actually, having a having a monopoly right and having a document is always useful. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. I mean, there are a few advantages to having registered designs. I mean, one, of course, is the duration of a registration. So, a reg provided you keep paying the renewal fees, a registered design can last for up to twenty five years. Whereas both the EU and UK unregistered design rights are, are much shorter. So with the UK unregistered design right lasting for a maximum of 15 years, but in most cases, as mentioned, be 10. So that's one advantage of a registration. Also, of course, you don't, you don't need to prove copying. And although in some cases there will be a presumption of copying, as Raheem mentioned, in relation to the cases he talked about, uh, there will be other cases where it may be much more difficult to prove that there has been copying. If, the other side has a more um, thoroughly documented uh, explanation as to where they came up with their design or how they came up with it independently. Um, and you don't have to worry about that with registered designs. I mean, an another thing where we've found registered designs to be quite useful is um, if you're trying to get potentially infringing products taken down from sale on online marketplaces. I know, Pete, you've had some experience in relation to this. Yeah, yeah, I've definitely um, acted for clients who have been the victim of this, where people are using registered design rights that are probably not valid on online marketplaces such as Amazon and eBay. They're, they're very eager to take down products which they think may be intellectual property infringements. So those people, you know, if that was a court case, we'd be challenging the validity of the design and we'd be you know, challenging um, their ability to enforce in quite a lot of detail. But actually, just the fact that they have this registration means that they've you know, they got the products put back on in the end. But, you know, there was a, a fair amount of uh, discomfort caused by just having that registration. And, and of course, that doesn't just apply to the online marketplaces you can file these documents with customs and, and border force and stop you know infringing products entering the country i don't know whether how successful you would be on unregistered rights i mean i think technically you should be able to rely on them but i i've certainly not seen any instances where people have 
successfully or easily been able to use unregistered design rights to to, to take down products or to stop products entering a country. I think that's yeah, that's a definite advantage. I mean, the other one thing we've encountered is particularly with sort of startup businesses who are looking for investment. Then investors also quite often like to see registered IP rights. Now, they, they may not necessarily understand the intricacies of of IP rights and why in some cases unregistered rights can actually be very useful as usual as registered rights but they do tend to like to see is a list of registrations protecting the products that a business is offering and seeking investment um, in relation to um, so that's another area I think where you know ha- having a registration can be a, can be a clear benefit. Yeah I completely agree and I think actually really kind of to, to kind of summarise the, the discussion we've just had, you know, registering your rights does not mean that you lose your unregistered rights. So all it means is that you've got extras. And given that they're not expensive to obtain, I think it's certainly worth considering getting registered rights, even if you know that there may be, that there may be flaws in, in enforcing them. Yeah, I think that was well illustrated in the in the sealed air case as well, where, where they were, of course, able to win on unregistered rights, even though they had a registered design that was unsuccessful, ultimately. We also see incidences where because a competitor is aware that someone has a registered design, it, they make more of an effort, I think, to sort of try and alter the designs of their products so that they don't look as, as similar as they might if they weren't aware that there was a registration so you know you could your registered design can be doing work for you without you even really being aware of it yeah especially if you write this is protected by a registered design somewhere on the box or the packaging i think that's a a useful tip for people thanks both i think that's a really good summary of the benefits of having registered designs just to close off this episode i want to end with the same question that i asked at the end of part one which is what is the effect, if any, of Brexit on UK design rights? Will there be much change in, in how things work in relation to them going forward, or will Brexit not really have an impact on them? In relation to registered designs, it's going to be quite interesting because because at the moment, as I mentioned, the law in relation to UK registered designs is essentially harmonised by EU law with the law in other EU member states. So there's a big question mark here as to whether in the future the UK law in relation to the registered design will start to diverge a bit more from EU law. Although I think that it's appreciated that for, for businesses, there's a big advantage in there being a high degree of harmonisation in relation to IP rights um, across ju- different jurisdictions. So, so we may not see too much divergence in the future. The other point, of course, is that following Brexit and after the end of a transition period, Anyone who owns a community registered design as at the end of a transition period will automatically be granted a UK registered design. So we'll find a lot of businesses who previously haven't had UK registered designs will suddenly find that they have have a portfolio of them that that needs to be managed. Yeah, and and insofar as the UK um, UDR is concerned, I mean, technically, this is an entirely UK right. There's no comparable EU right. So technically, there's no real change. Although I alluded to this earlier, and and I think in the field of copyright, the EU seems to be taking a a kind of harmonisation through the back door approach of not actually requiring people to change the national copyright laws, but actually the 
CJEU and, and other uh, and other treaties are, are kind of slowly bringing in this concept of accumulation, which is not something we have in the UK. So whilst I don't think there's anything necessarily to be concerned about with the change, I think it will be really interesting to see how uh, the two regimes carry on going forward and whether there will be any changes to the UK regime after the transition period and whether we will try to keep up with the EU regime. As David says, I think a lot of of businesses probably would like that because it's useful to have the same rights in, in many jurisdictions, but something to keep your eye on. And of course, the other thing to say is that we've gone from having sort of four or five different regimes to now having, you know, two different types of UK unregistered rights, two different types of UK registered rights, the ones derived from the UK register and the ones derived from the EU register. And now we've got copyright and copyright might um, might actually change and, uh, and be more beneficial for protecting design. So it's, you know, the, the, the field is getting muddier, uh, if you like, and it, it's all going to make it slightly more complicated to enforce or to consider your protection in the design sphere. Yeah, I think that just underlines the importance of making sure, you know, what rights you can have and you make sure that they're properly enforced. And like you say, they're, they're, it's an ever-growing area and it's really important to make sure that you have the right protections for your intellectual property. I think that brings us to the end of this two-part podcast on design rights. We hope you've enjoyed listening and that you'll join us for the next podcast. And of course, if you have any queries on designs or any other intellectual property queries, please do feel free to email Pete, David or myself. Thank you. This is a Charles Russell Speechlease podcast.